podcast with Alison Crogan and Robert Reed. Uh, we're minus Carissa Lee today, so it's just going to be Alison and I talking about stuff we've seen throughout the last six months because we estimate that we have seen about 90 shows or more. We have. And that's a lot of shows. So past couple of podcasts we've done, past six podcasts we've done, have mostly been talking about industrial issues and things like that, things facing us uh, in the community, which is terrific. But now it's not a bad time to sort of recap and look back over the work that we've seen, especially since some of it has been, well, a lot of it actually has been really good. Yes. I haven't seen a lot of theatre over the last couple of years. Mm. I kind of stepped back from reviewing a bit. And so this year is the first time in... Yeah, at least two years where I've been regularly going to the theatre. And it is pretty interesting after six months in Melbourne, yes, regularly seeing theatre, we've all been seeing different things, just to step back and see what the patterns are Mm. that are emerging. And some of it is so kind of positive. Yeah, yeah. Amid all the gloom. And there is a lot of gloom, let's face it. Yeah, it almost feels like there's that darkest before the dawn thing. So, like, things got bad. And now finally people are starting to do something about it because things got bad enough. Do you think? I feel like, yeah. yeah like the, it seems like, it. I don't know, to me it does feel like in a, a watershed over the last six months or so, which may have to do with the fact that I likewise stopped seeing shows for a couple of years mm. uh, and having come back to it for Witness, particularly reviewing, suddenly I find myself deluged with a number of really good shows that sounds like in the I'm surprised by how, how, how great the shows were, but a bit I am. In the old days when I was seeing stuff burnt out and seeing the same kind of MTC and La Mama shows over and over again. It gets very samey, whereas now I come back going, they're always the great shows and almost all of the really great shows that I've enjoyed in this last six months have all been by women, which I think is a significant change to 10 years ago when I was seeing stuff regularly. I mean, I wrote down all the shows I really enjoyed this year and the first thing that stuck out for me was so much of it was dance. Like Mm. dance in Melbourne is so exciting and various Mm. and healthy, I think. And there's some young companies coming up that are really exciting, like Slough and Smallland and Sun. I'm not quite sure how you say that. They sound like a a butcher's business, but they are really interesting Mm. marriage of performance, dance and ideas. And they're a very ambitious company. Mm. So um, they've been around for a few years, but the first thing I saw of theirs was in Next Wave, Lady Example. And that was, ah, just a knockout. Mm. It was so fantastic and interesting and, uh, you know, really looking forward to seeing what what else they do. And there was also the KCA, the Kia Choreographic Awards, which we all went to and saw. Yeah, some great stuff in there. My favourite of those was the Caltech Spectrum by Amrita Heppi. Yeah, yeah. Which actually won, which was... Yes. You know, very validating. <laughs> but, yeah, that was a beautiful piece. And, and that brings up the thing of diversity, yeah. quote, unquote. The strongest work I've seen, not entirely, but notably in the past six months, has been by women, by mm. people of colour. That's a really interesting new thing, A, mm. that it's being done. And the other thing is the quality, the quality of this work. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's not surprising. The white guys have been at this for, like, you know, the last 2,000 years. Of course we're tired and exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> About time you guys pulled your weight. Um, uh, uh, jokes, yeah, obviously yeah, jokes, yeah, obviously Rob, jokes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, yeah, no, that's so totally true, though. It's very true about the new companies, too. Again, so much of this might be 
the perspective of a kind of returned critic, but having seen the work of Bloomshed have been coming along and doing interesting work for a couple of years now. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of the guys coming out of Raimondo's course at the VCA yeah. have been responsible for some of the best shows that I've seen so okay, far Okay, so the Bloomshed did the nose. Did the nose, yeah. And which, what, what was exciting about that? What was exciting about it was the intellectual interrogation of the performance form and the original text. Right. It sort of reminded me of, uh, you know, like early – this decade, late last decade, there was a kind of lot of Simon Sones and so yeah. on taking those kind of classical texts and staging them with an Australian voice, which I was not a huge fan of. This feels like the opposite of that. This feels like taking one of those texts and tearing it apart and making your own thing with it, which was really, really interesting. That's more like what Daniel Schlusser Yeah, Yeah, saying. actually. Yeah, 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 it reminded yeah. me a lot of Daniel Schlusser's work. Yeah. I think James Jackson would love that comparison. Um, I'm sure he would. But so them and Emily Collier's contest directed by Prue Clark, I thought was really interesting, the work that they'd made out of that. Emily's certainly came out of the VCA course as well. And Olivia Satchel as well with uh, My Sister Feather, Mm -hmm. yeah, which was terrific as well. All very different. Was there anything there, threads in that work that made you, I mean, aside from the fact that they were directed by women, anything that struck you that was... You know what, across the board with those two certainly I've written a lot about the epicness of the shows lately and a bit with the dance as well I've, I feel like there are gods walking through the performances in in Melbourne at the moment right not necessarily okay. all of them but just a lot of the stuff feels like it either explicitly goes for a big operatic epic kind of world like contest does or even my sister feather breaks into these moments of seeing the two girls as something bigger than they are, something... Like a kind of mythic yeah, yeah. sense. That's interesting. I saw Joe Lloyd's Overture last night, mm. which is, a you know, a, an extraordinary work and I hope I can find a way to talk about it mm. and will have by the time this podcast goes to air. But And the same thing I walked out of is a work by a woman, mainly performed by women, and I walked out feeling it was epic. It was mm. an hour-long show that had this total air of epicness about it. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure why. But there's a largeness well, and, times, and, right? and uh, an ambitiousness in in the conception. And in the imagination too. Yeah. I don't know so much about Joe's work because I haven't seen it obviously. Yeah. But in the others, the imagination allows itself to go to these kind of big places where metaphors become real, right? Like we stalk mm. into images and walk, we- walk around wearing them like skins, mm. which feels different to, again, the last time I was seeing stuff regularly was much more about, we talk about issues and we talk about stuff and was still yeah, that well, kind of... Yeah, that's always bored me. Yeah. Away from when I started going to theatre, that was always the kind of theatre that I just wanted to go to sleep in but couldn't. Yeah. Because, yeah, it's like something... I think partly that's comes from coming from a journalistic background. It's mm. like I go to newspapers to read about and have these things explained yeah. in unless you know I mean there's obviously exceptions and there's things like you know extraordinary documentary theater that verbatim theater but they always bring something else that you can't get yeah from an op-ed yeah well education yeah. itself is not inherently dramatic right but no the dramatic can have an educational quality you can learn from drama so yeah. and I think that's a bit but the that's difference not between the point, it, right? though, no it? of course not yeah I mean, like Blackie Blackie Brown, which is one of the standout shows of this year. Yeah, definitely. That's not about education as such, no. but it certainly educates you sitting there as a white audience member. Mm. I think there was something so exciting about sitting there and seeing a show that explicitly was saying, we're not about being worthy. Mm. We're not about educating you. 
this is a cartoon enactment. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was extraordinary. It was so funny. Yeah. And then right in the middle of this, yeah, cartoon fun, if you like, of sort, it was literally bam, pow, projected onto the thing, like old school Batman or yeah, something. Yeah. There's this devastating monologue, mm. which is a historical monologue about the kinds of massacres that dot the map mm. of Australia, the unacknowledged shames of our history, yeah, yeah. where men, women and children were just brutally murdered mm. by white settlers. Mm. And that has its own weight. It's something that sits in the middle of the show. It explains the anger and also the generosity of the kind of forgiveness that mm. the show also allows or permits. And the show is saying, be educated. Mm. But at the same time, what a piece of theatre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like she's doing all these things. It's Nakia Louie doing all these things at the same time. Yeah. And that's formally audacious. Mm. It's her and Declan Green. I mean, Nakia Louie, she was a uh, dramaturg on Sovereign Wife, yep. which was the Sisters Grimm thing at the Melbourne Theatre Company in the first neon season. Mm. And Sovereign Wife was also outrageously funny, but at the same time was this kind of unsparing look at Australian colonialism. Yeah, yeah. So it was so interesting seeing Blackie, Blackie Brown years later as this kind of development of that mm. very exciting theatre. But it shows how these new voices, when they're brought into theatre and given resources, that's really important, yeah. what they can do and how they can break open new ways of making theatre. Yeah, yeah, especially yeah. when it's just about here's the space, make the thing, and they make the thing as opposed to here's the space and it's set aside in the this is the Indigenous portion of the season, so yeah. you'll make a work that is about the Indigenous community in this particular way, etc. Because, yeah. of course, inevitably their uh, existence is political, so it's going to find its way into whatever they make um, rather than being boxed into it by the expectations of the white season. Yeah, yeah. and, you know, like even just as a woman, I remember – when I was a young poet, that thing of being always put in the women's bit. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and on the one hand, the importance of that, that there must be a place where being a woman is visible. And on the other hand, the way that place remains marginalised. Mm. So that that's the dilemma around those things. And it's really important we have Indigenous companies. Yeah, yeah. Where you have Indigenous artistic directors and production staff. That's really important. And there's still that idea that's constantly floating around about a national Indigenous theatre, like, mm, mm. which is as vexed as any other idea in Australia about a national theatre, I think. that Yeah. You know, it's an idea and then it's an idea that suggests, like, with any kind of national thing that, you know, maybe that's a way of covering the diversity mm. of something, that one voice becomes prominent at the expense of a whole lot of other different cultures. And I think that's just as much a problem in Indigenous culture as it is in white culture. I think the best play I saw this year was Barbershop Chronicles. Mm, I didn't see that one. Sorry. Which is Inuit Ellum's play with National Theatre, mm. which toured Australia earlier this year. I saw it at the Perth Festival, but it was at the Arts Centre mm. as well. And that's a really, I mean, beautifully written play. Mm. Like, I thought the best written play, took this really simple idea. It's about men and it's specifically about black men. Mm -hmm. And it emerged from a project where 
somebody noted that an awful lot of the kind of therapeutic talking between men happens in the barbershop, mm-hmm. that men will go in, have their hair cut, socialise, talk about the things that bother them. Mm. And um, Inwa Elam basically researched this and then made a play which was set in barbershops all around the world, in London, in Africa, and created these conversations between these different characters. So it was one of those, again, epic Mm. in its scope. Right in the middle of the stage was a globe which indicated where you were when the scene changed. Mm -hmm. And so there was these conversations which were all about the kind of local and global things. Mm -hmm. They were kind of addressing all sorts of things which were punctuated by these fantastic songs. So, and it was beautifully directed. It was um, just a very exciting work of theatre, quite apart from anything else. And I thought, yeah, beautifully written in terms of how the whole thing was structured and just formally Mm. extraordinary. But he's an extraordinary writer. I mean, he's he's a poet as well, which is entirely unsurprising. And part of it is just this excitement about seeing uncompromised voices on stage mm. i mean and i think that that applies everywhere that there's you know people of color of stepping forward and in a way i think like any marginalized group there's a sense that now's the time there's nothing to lose yeah, yeah. and and it's time to speak i was talking to somebody last night who was saying basically in terms of her own work that it's difficult what she's doing but she doesn't want to be anywhere else mm. uh, because this is what she believes in. And I think that's, that's something that's kind of happening across the arts that we're all kind of going, well, if we're going to be doing art in times of crisis, and let's face it, we are in times of crisis, mm, yeah. that we better be doing the art we believe in. Otherwise, it's a waste of time. We might as well go and do something useful. Yeah, exactly. And art that is critically robust, yeah, that, yeah. that doesn't just lazily accept a whole lot of things that are being obviously hollow now, mm. you know, that, that are self-critical, that do address things that trouble us. Yeah, well, I'm talking to my students a lot about this sort of stuff at the moment as well a bit because they're all sort of starting out and heading into the industry such as it may be. And it feels a lot like kind of the advice that I want to give is that the reason to go into making theatre is because that's the way you can say your thing and, and that you can have a direct impact on the moment now. But because they're all, you know, 17, 18, et cetera, it's all about the future for them and wanting to, what, what can I do in the future and how do I have a career and how do I get famous and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, yeah, well, but none of that is – a lot of that doesn't even exist in the industry no. anymore for you. So if you're going to go if into this, did. if it ever did, yeah. a lot of that stuff is really lies that just control people and push them into a failed idea of what an artist's life should be, and which is also a confusing thing to tell 16 and 17-year-olds. No, exactly. But yeah, like a lot of that stuff, that doesn't exist. But if you're going to go into it, do it because you're driven there, do it because this is the way you can speak to the people you want to speak to. Mm. Otherwise, there's certainly no point doing it for the money and there's certainly no point doing it for the fame. No, and there there is a larger question there around the self and other as kind of a point of ethics, I think. Mm. Like how do we – I'm not talking about being moralistic but expanding the ethical scope of the society in which we're working, mm, Yeah, which seems to me one of the most obvious things about the public 
discourse that we're all existing in now is how everything is just slamming down into these inflexible binaries. Yeah, yeah. And how do we... Art is a, art is a thing that can question those, push those, mm. make things more complex, show, you know, across gulfs. And I'm not talking about talking to Nazis either. There, <laughs> there are moments where you just go, no. <laughs> <laughs> but because the whole Nazi thing, the whole Nazi phenomenon that we're watching happen before our eyes and is about those inflexible things. Mm. I've thought for a long time that the real kind of conflict is between the complex, which is the modern world in which we're existing, with so many complex problems and the human desire to just simplify yeah, yeah. for simple answers. Yeah, yeah. Art is about not having simple art answers, I think. Well, in fact, realistically, existence is as well, right? Yeah, like it the, is. In day-to-day existence, there is no such black and white, simple sort of stuff, right? Like, this is, again, another thing I've been harping on about in the last couple of months is that notion of the platonic anxiety that everything must be separated into its either A or B. And yeah. actually, no, that's not how reality works. That's not how science works. That's not how nothing works except for categorization. Mm. That's a very human and neurotic thing to do. Yeah. So, and we, I think now is feels like a swing away from that finally as well yeah. at a time of kind of peak anxiety around not only uh, social stuff, but I mean, underlying it, there's all the climate anxiety that no matter how That's much denial there is, yeah. the, the human beings know something is not right. And of course, we're going to fall into the habits of going X and Y are right and A and B are not right because that makes it simpler and well, it's panic anxiety. mode, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some of and that, it's the way you get killed too. Like, yeah, and it's and it yeah, fight and flight or whatever. Fight or flight, yeah. You know, and it's the, not even the, fight or flight. The lizard brain stuff that that takes over. That I mean, I remember reading that being afraid literally makes you more stupid. Mm, yeah. And and we're living in a time of high anxiety. Yeah, yeah. And some of that's manufactured. A lot of that's manufactured, and is directed in the wrong places. Um, Interestingly, being manufactured by industries and media that are in the process of dying too. Yes. There's the kind of struggle over print media and TV and traditional broadcast media, which are the most, the loudest and the most panicked proponents of the the stuff that drives a society into panic. Yeah. I think about, and of course, aided and abetted by the politicians who use that to drive kind of wedge politics. I mean, you know, in the face of those kinds of powers making art can seem like pointless Mm. and maybe it is let's face it no not at all i think it's absolutely vital it's the one of the reasons we're here at this point where we're not able to talk to each other is because we've isolated the artists particularly performance artists into a broadcast mode because that satisfies industry that satisfies capitalism it satisfies the modes of production to Mm -hmm. a large group of people which makes a lot of money but then Because we do that, the only way physically to do that is to have the artist isolated from their thousands and thousands of adoring fans so they can no longer have and engender the kind of conversations art is supposed to engender. Mm. So art isn't doing what art's supposed to do. All it's doing is making certain artists richer. Do you think so? Absolutely think so. <laughs> I was just thinking Absolutely. about thinking about no, it isn't that isn't the only thing it's doing because you were just talking about a whole bunch of independent artists. Oh well yes, doing, of course, of course. Or not just independent. There's been some good art on main stages too, but you know, like Bleeding Tree. Yeah. Which was yeah. fantastic. And by a white man, we might add. Mm. You know, which was again exciting art. But I, I think the thing the thing that's always drawn me to theatre is that intimacy mm. that it offers mm. and in successful iterations of it 
what you have is this communal experience that's quite literal. You're all in the same space. That offers a kind of counter yeah. to this other thing. Yeah, um, I think in rare instances that still happens, and so Bleeding Tree is a good example of that. And one mm. of the reasons why it's been put on a couple of times and got the Premier's Literary Award and all of those was the Premier's Literary Award. I'm assuming, yeah. yeah, got all that sort of stuff. So occasionally, art still sparks that. It does what it's supposed to do, which is spark that kind of conversation and bring us together as opposed to separating us into, oh, how great that artist is. Well, how um, about Lone in that picture? How about Lone, Lone? Lone by the Rabble was a quite extraordinary cross between an installation and a performance mm. where the performers were young children, each of them in a kind of box that they helped to co-design. They co-wrote their scripts and... You went into the box, I think there were 11 boxes, mm. and you were alone for 45 minutes with mm. a child who did this performance. Mm. So we were, and it was called Lone, yeah. and it was about being alone. Uh, we both saw different houses. We did, yeah. we did. How does it fit into that? Well, that, I mean, it was a unique experience, and it mm. fits into those kind of. If I was to be cynical, it would fit into that kind of experience hunter kind of place, that, that sort of same thing that drove wanting to find your rotozazas and one step at a time like this and oh, things okay, like that. Yes. So kind of there are adventures or there are unique experiences you can go have which are a kind of bespoke living, I guess, in mm -hmm. a way. Like uh, all those one-on-one -on -one experiences. Yeah, yeah, and escape rooms and a lot of the pop-up playground stuff we did. Like all of that sort of stuff was about catering to people to create an experience for them. Around them as audience. Yeah, yeah. as audience and as participants, as the star yeah. of the experience, etc. Yeah. The child was very much in charge, certainly in my experience of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I do, yeah, I thought, well, my experience I felt... A kind of co-authorship to that, but I may have just claimed that in my own head, right? Yeah. Like that that's, may not have been what was going on. But it creates a space where you can, well, you, or at least my one, I felt forced to go, well, what is my role here? Because yeah. I am clearly in the room. Yeah. And then I author my part of it. Yeah. Hmm. It was very interesting. I mean, because part of it was how you couldn't possibly have the same experience as everyone else. Who mm. was, So it wasn't a communal experience in that way. You were having this intimate time with a child who was telling you something mysterious about their inner lives because I felt that very strongly yeah, about yeah. it. And it was, yeah, beautiful. I, I mean, my part of it was really beautiful. Mm, I spoke to someone too. else who saw a different one who said they were terrified. Yeah, right. Which which was like, wow, really? Yeah. Um, These so are small children. Yeah, but, uh, you know, that I suppose it's that touching of childhood happens oh, to yeah. an adult in that thing and can open it really interesting kind of unexpected mm. things within your own psyche, I think. Um, you say that's not communal, though. The In those moments of the performance, in that, in that moment of the performance, that's not communal. That's shared between the two of you. But the overall right. experience is communal because we gather beforehand going, oh, what's it going to be? That's and then true, afterwards, yeah. one of the most important parts is... What I saw happened? this. What did you see? Because <laughs> yes, right. we stood around. I wanted to go too, but I got st stood around talking to Anne Marie and a couple of the others, I think Cameron, et cetera, all going, I saw this. You saw, what did you see? Yeah, well and like with play and like with games, that moment afterwards of being able to share together what you've just been through and narrativize the experience you've just had is a crucial part of the art making process. Absolutely, yeah. it is, yeah. And, and the thing of even in, in a conventional auditorium where you're sitting mm. watching a stage, 
I mean, I, I still find it so fascinating that I can sit next to someone and have an entirely different yeah. experience. It's one of the things I love about theatre. Oh, yeah. You know, like I can sit next to people who are laughing their heads off or being miserable yeah, while yeah. I'm having a lovely time or a terrible time and or I'm, I don't think it's funny but that person is hysterical yeah, or, yeah. and how interesting that is. It's like a private kind of version of that narrativization at the end of the game or the end of the experience in the moment. So you're sitting there because I sit in a show and I listen to the audience's responses as well. So someone will laugh at something. I'm like, really? This is what we're laughing at now? There have been a couple of times where audiences have had that reaction. I'm like, okay. (laughs) But in that, there's that moment of processing going, well, Clearly, I don't fit in with this group of people's idea of whatever that thing was. Mm. So it is a kind of ongoing, almost silent process of negotiation in the audience as to what's okay and what what our experience is together. Mm. Yeah, right? It's pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, I suppose the thing that we've come out of this first six months of witness with the feeling that, wow, there's really stuff going on. There really is, yeah. That there's a whole bunch of really interesting artists, new artists as well. It all, I, not to, I just, I can't help but feel like it feels like the start of the 2000s when you felt like there was a Lally Cats out there waiting to hear. Yeah. There was an Angus and there was a stuck big squealing in a yeah. theatre risk. They're all out there floating around. They just need something to bring them all together and we'll have another wave. Yeah, well, you know, it does feel like that. Mm. Maybe we're imagining it, but, but it, that, also well, the possible. work is out there without a doubt. And given how tough it is now, it is so much tougher now yeah, yeah. than it was in the early 2000s. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's never been much money, but there was money and there were institutions that were helping and now everything has had stepped back considerably and yet still there's artists out there yeah. making really interesting stuff, possibly more interesting stuff. Maybe it's just that there's no room for complacency. You think? I guess. I don't know how that relates. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, you know, we can't we can't sit back and just expect this stuff to happen or that stuff will be good or that old mm. ideas are good enough or unexamined lives are worth living. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On those poignant reflections from Alison there, we're going to bring it to a close. So you've been listening to The Witness Podcast with Alison Crogan, sound by Ben Keane, and I'm Robert Reed. Remember to go to witnessperformance.com and subscribe if you don't already. And if you do, tell your friends to, because we really need the money. Thanks, and we'll see you next month. <laughs> <laughs>